Welcome to the Passion Business Podcast, the podcast for free spirits with a big idea who want to turn their passion into a business. I'm Anke Herman and I'm your host. My guest for this episode is a therapist, author, speaker and trainer. She has over 20 years of experience with difficult to treat populations such as autism, Asperger's, intergenerational trauma and other moderate to severe social, emotional and behavioral issues. After prompts by numerous parents and colleagues, she has captured in words the philosophy and methodology that has assisted her in offering hope and positive change to the lives of families with hypersensitive children who have failed in treatment often for years before being introduced to the Lafayette way of responding. She is literally an angel who can really see your soul and figure out exactly what your problems are. We absolutely love her. She's one of a kind. That's what one of the parents she helped said about her. Welcome, Lafaya Mitchell. Hello and welcome, Lafaya. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, why don't we just get started with you telling people where you're from, where you're based, and what's your business? Okay, well, my name is Lafaya Mitchell. I'm from Sacramento, California, and I've developed the LaFayette Way, a philosophy that is to help many people who are dealing with children who are hypersensitive. All right. There's a lot in there now. So, <laughs> so now I think the first thing I'm curious about, how, how exactly do, I mean, obviously the LaFayette Way, I want to know more about what that actually is. I always imagine like when you leave school, Right? Or when you're at school and someone goes, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? Oh, you know, I'm going to be the founder of the Lafayette Method. You know, I doubt how that's what you were thinking. So how okay. did you get to even do the work you're doing now? Okay, well, there's a long story behind it. So here we go. <laughs> I started out from the beginning, well, actually in school. I initially planned on going into nursing because it's always been my desire to help people. In mm -hmm. healing, I know that that's always been in me. And so, and then during the process of going to school, what I learned was nursing was not for me. First of all, I don't like bodily fluids and, you know, stuff like that. So, so that was already a bad thing, right? But I took one psychology class, Psych 101. And from that point forward, I knew that I was going wow. into issues having to do with the mind. So I was still in health, right? But now yeah. it was mental health instead of, you know, that physical health piece. Mm -hmm. And so... And so once I figured out that I really liked what I was hearing in the psychology class, then it really kind of turned into this whole, ooh, I get to learn more about me kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I, when I started to reach out and try to find the first jobs that I wanted to try to get, I wanted them to be associated with that. So my very first job at 18 years old was a residential counselor at an in-care facility for developmentally disabled males who had, who were out of prison from being sex offenders. So they had to be kept in this house and, you know, they were all sex offenders. So these were individuals that were very, they're very interesting individuals. But what all of the staff found even back then at 18 was that I got really good results with the guys. Like they listened to me, no problem. They, you know, and it was just, it's kind of like a natural approach for me mm -hmm. because I don't tend towards judgment of people. Because now I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my past in a bit, but, but I have quite a, an interesting history. So I have no room to judge people. I made a lot of mistakes myself. And so when I come to people and I'm there to counsel or help them, then there's just this perspective that I come from that I think feels non-judgmental. So that's mm. a big piece of how this philosophy started to develop. And then my next job was with severely emotionally disturbed children in a 12 home, it was a Sacramento children's home. I, I worked with these kids that were considered, you know, really bad. And a lot of the staff that, and this was, I think I was about 20 at that point, but a lot of the staff, they didn't seem to like the kids and they didn't seem to get good results with the kids either. But I did, I was very young and I could actually, even though it wasn't, you know, quite kosher all the time, but I could actually be in the house with the kids by myself. They stayed in these little cottages in the background of the building. And, and get great results. The kids were all wonderful with me. 
and it was because of my approach. My approach, they didn't feel any dislike coming from me. They didn't feel judgment coming from me. All they felt was that I wanted what was best for them. And that's always and that's always how I feel when I work with people is I want what's best for them. And that comes through. Okay. And so then we fast forward and I've done lots of things. I've worked with, you know, women who are HIV positive and not in in proper medical care. So I work for a program there to help them get into medical compliant with medical care. I worked with moms at risk of abuse and neglect through this old check program, creating healthy environments for children. I, I did lots of work that all had to do with getting compliance from those who are most difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in each environment I would have, and it just, it was interesting how it all came together, but in each environment I would work in, I was always with the most challenging populations. The ones that people would say, oh, don't even try, or, you know, or this is what they're going to do, you know, they're never going to listen, and, you know, all that, and I would get results. Yeah. And so, and so then um, I ended up in a position where I, I worked for an in, intensive outpatient program. During that time, that's when I was introduced to autism spectrum disorder. This was about 20 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. I was introduced to autism spectrum disorder. And the people who were in the program, they knew how to work with all the rest of the disorders. They knew how to work with the bipolars and all of that. But they didn't have a clue when it came to autism spectrum. And so when I came in, I, I kind of was the immediate fit for me. They said as soon as they saw the work that I did with some of the, the kids on the spectrum, especially the very first child that I was, I was uh, assigned, he was nonverbal. He didn't respond to anything. He was in his own little world. He didn't even answer to his mom calling his name. And wow. so when they initially brought him, and by the time we were done working together, he, he was verbal. He was actually expressing empathy toward other kids at school. Like his wow. teacher was going nuts. Like, oh my goodness, to his mom, oh my goodness. A, a child fell today on the playground and he walked over to the kid and he asked him, was they, were they okay? And, and helped them get up. And the teacher was like floored wow. <laughs> because this kid was like fully, fully disengaged before. And my whole thing was, I didn't think there was anything super special that I did. I thought that it was just more of my crazy that, that engaged him because he was like, he was like that kid. He didn't want to have anything to do with me. Like he was like hiding under tunnels and, and doing all this stuff. We had these little, little uh, three foot tunnels in our, for, for uh, therapeutic play in our room. He would use them to hide away from me. So he didn't have to look at me or hear me or anything. Right. And so one day I was like, you know, you don't really want to be here. And my whole thing was, and I don't really blame you, right? <laughs> you know, who wants to be in therapy? Who wants people to talk to them when they don't want to be talked to, right? And so I didn't fully understand what was going on with him. And so one day he put the little tunnel over himself and he threw it off like he usually does. Like if I stop talking to him, he'll throw the tunnel off. Like, okay, fine. Now I'm going to go play by myself, right? And this, just one day I was like, you know what? What is it like in that tunnel anyway? And so I picked the tunnel up and I put it over my own head and I looked around. It was blue and I looked around and I was like, I was like, oh, I understand why you like it in here. I was like, you know, you can't see anybody. They can't see you. You know, <laughs> right? right? You don't have to you don't try to do the eye contact or any of that stuff. Right. Yeah. And so when I pulled the tunnel down, I all of a sudden had his full attention. Yeah. So I pulled it down because, you know, you can't just not see the kid while you're in session. And, so, and when I pulled it down, he was looking at me and he had never given me eye contact. He was looking at me with this, like, it was a slight smile in his eyes. Like, what are you doing weird lady? Right. <laughs> so, and I was like, and I was, when he was looking at me, I was like, oh, oh no, if I don't get to look at you, you don't get to look at me. So I put the tunnel back up. <laughs> And then I put it back down. And this time it was interesting because it turned into more. He didn't have very much expressiveness in his face, but it turned to more of a smile. And it turned to the weird game of like peekaboo with him. I'll, I'll talk about it in my book, The LaFailway. And it was such an interesting thing. But from that point forward, we just slowly but surely worked on his engagement. It ended up being side by side play at first. He would let me play next to him. He would be playing with his thing and he would take a toy some, some a piece of he was working with and he would throw it to me so that I'm doing the same thing he's doing. So we started mm-hmm. that way. <laughs> yeah. And then he was able to turn around and we were able to play together. And then it turned into the next day and we just, we would take turns. So we were able to develop a relationship that way. And from that point forward, then what I knew was you have to become more interested in what the kid is interested in before you expect for them to take an interest in you. Yeah. Now to me, 
that felt like common sense. But in, from that point forward, whenever we had a child come in, especially on the spectrum, they're like, they're yours, that's yours, you take like, and I'm like, great, because I love, you know, I love kids on the spectrum, because most of the time, they're freaking geniuses anyway, so yeah. I have some, and so, and so, you know, I got really good at that particular work, and then when I was, then I noticed that it helped me in my work with everybody else. Mm -hmm. So then when I was dealing with the bipolars, when I was dealing with the reactive attachment disorders, you know, the foster kids and adoptive kids and those kind of things, then I was having great breakthrough sooner with them because I was using the same method that I would use with the kids on the spectrum. Okay. So, so then at that point, I, I recognized and I realized, you know what, the commonality, the common piece for all of the kids is that they're hypersensitive there. And when I say hypersensitive, I mean, just, they're just, especially sensitive to stimuli that other people wouldn't interpret as, as overwhelming. Okay. That's all it is. So lots of times, especially with kids on the spectrum and other kids as well, there are sensory issues. So people will feel like they're overreacting if say like they try a new food and they gag or, you know, they hear a sound and they get all upset and worked up about it. You know, people will think that's an over-exaggeration when that's not what it is at all. That's just a sensitivity. That's a sensory issue. And most times people will miss that, you know, especially for those kids who are, higher on the spectrum now what and i don't know what's i actually don't know what's kosher anymore because people keep changing it you know i think it's for insurance coverage reasons or something or non-coverage reasons whatever you know but they keep changing autism and now it's i think there's a separation i hope between autism and asperger's i'm not sure or i don't know if they have them all on the same spectrum where it's just asperger's is on the higher end of the spectrum it doesn't really matter to me i just where i work with people where they are so yeah. the diagnosis the label doesn't matter as much to me as what is going on with you and how do we fix it? You know, how do we heal the relationship? How do we, you know, that's my thing. Yeah. Right? That's fine. It's fascinating because, because at the end of like, it's surprising, you know, it's one of those examples where you are obviously naturally good at that, right. To just sort of yeah. meet them where they are and see them as well there's actually nothing wrong with it you're perhaps a little bit more sensitive here and I'm kind of a bit more sensitive over there so basically we kind of the same thing and I think yes. people really really feel that now what I'm curious about is that just like sort of a talent like some people just know how to draw or is that a skill that you develop really early on Okay, I would say that it was a point of extreme understanding on my end because I realized that I was always that hypersensitive person. Mm -hmm. So having come from a trauma past, I was able to identify quickly that it was just that the want to try to engage. They don't want to have to do the things that you have to do socially to engage with another person. So to make that eye contact, I understood not wanting to look at me when I've always had trouble with eye contact. So when I try to look at people, it burns. I was taught in my family that when you're looking at someone and you look at them in their eyes, it's like a challenge. It was like I had a bunch of pit bulls, uncles or something in my family, because when you look at them in their eyes, you're challenging them. So you can get into trouble for that. And so what I learned right away is that it's not okay to look into people's eyes. Right. And I have such a, you know, a bunch of trauma space in there. So there was some sexual abuse. There was a lot of things in my history that caused me to not want to engage with other people, not to connect with other people because I found people to be unsafe. Mm. And so with kids on the spectrum, especially what I learned was they didn't feel safe with other people. Why? Because they were very, they're very empathic. Like in not, and it's, and it's tough because I want to say a form of empathic. So, and I want to say maybe hypersensitive because that's a better way to, to capture it. Because empaths, they tend toward really being engaged in how other people feel. Like they, they're like over the top with that. Now, and it's because they feel into other people's experiences. So when another person is, is in pain, they're in pain as well. And they just want the pain again. So they're trying to figure out how to make that end. They're trying to avoid being exposed to that negative feeling energy. So they just shut down and close off. And then also with myself and with other hypersensitive people, since they feel into how other people feel, when other people do the social graces thing, when they when they pretend as if everything's okay, or they're they try to use a soft tone and you know all these things to, to try to be correct about the way they're interacting, but on their on the inside, they're like 
extremely angry or frustrated or, you know, or disappointed or all those things. See, we're feeling into the person's real experience on the inside. Yeah. And so when they're reacting a different way on the outside, our thoughts are, you're fake. I can't trust what you say. I don't trust you because I know you hate me. And it feels, then it feels like hate. So then they're trying to cover it and talk nicely. And so, and then it almost, as you get older, you know, in, or, you know, intellectually savvy for a child in that position, then it starts to feel like, okay, either you think I'm stupid or you really hate me and you have, and you don't want to tell me that because you're my parent, you're not supposed to hate me, but you really hate me. So a lot of parents will hear that from their kids is you hate me. And all these things, the parents are like, I don't hate you, you know, and all this, you know, all this and that. And the kid is like, no, you hate me. You just don't want to say it. And, you know, I'm a burden. And they hear that all the time because oftentimes because of that incongruence mm-hmm. between what it is they're feel, the parents are feeling and what they're saying. So then the kids make up their own mind and say, okay, well, if you have to lie to me about how you're feeling, then you must, it must be really bad. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, you know, what, what I'm, you know, what I'm doing now is just trying to kind of capture that, how that happens and how people work now and deal with that. Now you're dealing with th- with the kids in a slightly or adults as well, because you know adults are hypersensitive too. It's just kids that that's been my area, right? But but you have now you have to recognize there's this sensitivity where they feel through to your internal experience. So now you have to figure out how to find your zen. You have to figure out what your saw moment is now before you're dealing with this kid. Because if you don't, they're gonna react to what's what's happening with you on the inside, yeah. and you're gonna wonder why because on the outside you're presenting it nicely. Right. <laughs> so, so basically you don't really work with the, like, it's not about working with the kids or trying to change the kids or that, or whoever this hypersensitive person is. It's really about, I think the people dealing with them or the people who feel they have a problem with them. It's almost like taking them on to a journey of self-discovery really, isn't it? You actually have to yes. go quite deep yes. with them, don't you? Yes. Now, okay. And, but for me, it's, it's on both sides. So I don't want to miss the side because I, I, I like to cover, I'm like a wraparound. Like I want to cover it all. Right. And so, um, but you have to deal with it. You have to, you have to deal with the child in the context of here are your challenges. Okay. And now that you know your challenges so that you're not unhappy for the rest of your life, because most people have learned that it's socially appropriate to do things this way. You have to make some shifts in that automatic thinking that's happening in you. So they're not fake. They're, they don't hate you. It's more that they've been taught that you have to speak softly or you're supposed to, you're not supposed to say you're really frustrating me right now a lot of times, you know, and things like that. We've been taught in society to be dishonest. I love working with, with hypersensitive kids and adults because they are the most honest people most of the time that you can meet. Unless people have ruined them already, they are the most honest people. And I want them to tell me the truth. I want them to come into my office and say, why do I have to be here? Like, or I don't want to be here because I love that. I'm like, Oh, you know what? I'll live, you know, and it, and it, refl- it comes through. I'm like, I love your truth. And I'm going to give you mine. Look, I don't blame you. I don't, sometimes I don't want to be here either. And I'm paid. So I can't imagine how you feel. Right. <laughs> I've actually said that to some of the kids and they're like, you're not supposed to say that. And I'm, and I'm looking at them like, and you're not supposed to say that. So now since we're both being honest, now you know me, I know you, right? Since you're here anyway, because there's been some behaviors and clearly something that's making you unhappy, let's at least try to figure out how to help you get to happy, right? And get better results with what it is you're dealing with, right? Since you're here, right? Yeah, <laughs> after that, after that, the kids are fully engaged. And then we're going out, the kids are like asking the parents when they're coming back. The parents are like, okay, what did you do to my kid? Like, what magic wand do you have to, to have my kid wanting to come back to you? And I said, you know, my magic wand is just honesty, okay? It, it, it's filled with, it's just me dealing in their truth, accepting their truth for what it is without taking it personally. And then teaching them that, yeah, can't, you know, don't blame you. Here's my truth. And let's work together. Let's figure out how to at least put you in a position where you're feeling better, right? Right? So that you're not mad or sad every day. It's been, it's been quite a journey. But now on the other side of that, then I do. I want to deal with the people who have the most access 
to either our kids or their parents because they're like the support system. So we need to bring this whole thing in. So, so it's not only the parents that need to know this stuff, but it's the, the schools need to know how to work with hypersensitive kids. The medical facilities need to know. Law enforcement really needs to know how to deal with hypersensitive individuals. That's why we have some of the Black Lives Matter stuff going on right this day, right? Because there's a lack of understanding of that form of hypersensitivity, which is based in when you're dealing with people who are from, say, like, you know, socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods, or they're coming from abuse histories, neglect histories, there's going to be some, and, and, and whatever, whatever other trauma they experience, right? <laughs> they're going to come from all kinds of perspectives because they're hypersensitive. So now they're drawing from the energies the same as the kid on the spectrum. They're drawing from the negative energies of other people, and they're responsive to that as opposed to what the people are saying out of their mouths, right? We're trying to act calm when internally they're not calm at all. Right. And so but we get law enforcement. Sorry, I got you know, that's my, my thing. I had to get on my soapbox a little bit. And faith based communities. Lots yeah. to say about that. But lots of families who have hypersensitive individuals, children, whether it be children or adults now with challenges, they'll almost shy away from going into the faith based faith based communities because, you know, that's a place where people are supposed to be socially appropriate. So if they have a kid in the background screaming, you know, or something like that, and, you know, being disruptive or whatever, then there, then people in the faith-based communities don't know what to do with these families. So the families end up just going away. And then now they've lost a point of support that they need for their spiritual health. And so now they're kind of just out there lost. And so, but yeah, those, you know, those are my primary groups that I want to make sure that I work with. And then social service workers, sorry, I want to definitely make sure I mention them. Social service workers, especially those who work with, you know, like foster kids, the reactive attachment disorders or adopted kids, those that work with um, some of the, with trauma, especially that's that's where you get into hypersensitivity, intergenerational trauma is one of my biggies. You know, I'm working with an organization, Neighborhood Wellness Foundation, and they are doing awesome work for intergenerational trauma and I'm doing work with them to train the staff, the mentors on how to work with the individuals. Once you have them in, okay, you pull them off the streets and you're working with them, what now? Okay, so we want you not to chase them away, right? And then we also have, and, and within that, we also have the people who are dealing and working with those who are being sex trafficked. So they're getting those, those, young ladies and young men off of the streets, then they were in another now what moment because you'll lose them quickly. If you're, especially if you're judging them or you're personalizing how they're responding to you, they have been through it. So if they're having a bad response to your help, you have to learn that they're supposed to have a bad response to your help because they're accustomed to not having that help. And the world has not been a safe place to them. And the only safe space that they actually have is this unhealthy uh, roadblock barrier that they have between themselves and others because if I don't connect then I won't be as damaged or as hurt right and so then you have to understand where they're coming from so then now you can deal with them accordingly with acceptance and non-judgmental attitude right why do you think that's so difficult for people because dealing with another person with a non-judgmental attitude requires that you not be judgmental of yourself now, people are going to hate this at first, okay? But I'm all about accountability. If something is upsetting to you, it's upsetting to you, okay? It doesn't mean that it's upsetting to everybody else who deals with it, right? I've been called out my name. I've been called the N-word and the B-word and some of everything else, right? I've been called those things. And in my past, I would tell you I probably would have whooped on somebody that did that. But, you know, now, <laughs> you know, now, it happened at this point, you know, in my life as well. And now it's more of a sometimes, but that has nothing to do with what we're dealing with right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so if you are just, if you're okay with yourself, if you're in love with who you are and you understand that your intentions are great intentions and that if someone has an issue or a problem with something it is that you're doing, you're not taking that personally, you're understanding that to be more of an issue that they have there may be some shifts and something that you can do if you want to be able to relate well to that individual. But most of the time, another person's upset has to do with them, their history. You know, what kind of past have, have they had with situations like this? So say, for example, people, most of the people who work in intergenerational trauma are volunteers who have themselves 
survived or been through intergenerational trauma or they're trying, they're kind of doing some of their healing work by working with others, right? So they have all these sensitivities. Just quickly, intergenerational trauma, how do you define yeah. that? What is that? Okay, uh, quick and dirty. <laughs> and we're doing quick and dirty. It's, it's basically like the passing on of trauma experiences from generation to generation, mm. okay? So it's sometimes the ki kids of now, right? they're still very much having responses that are based in some of the trauma of their relatives or ancestors back in the past. Mm -hmm. So say like with the black community, we are coming from a, a generations of slavery, okay? And so then we have our kids two generations later, hypersensitive now to other people thinking that they're stupid, because remember education wasn't allowed, hypersensitive to how other people are looking at them, hypersensitive to feeling feeling like they're being disenfranchised, right? And it's automatic and it's kind of an automatic and quick thing. And then they they seem to have this chip on their shoulder, but it really is just a passing on of old cycles that when a person who comes from a certain from say the slavery background They've raised their children now based on experiences. So now their experiences, some of the, what they've experienced and what the children, now the children are taught, they're bringing on into their experiences. And so there was a big, you know, big trend towards, especially when you're dealing with, you know, uh, uh, black families of, of spanking or what they call whooping, you know, but they call it whooping when it used to be called whipping, right? So they were whipped with literal whips back in the day. And this is what they learned kept a person in control because that's what other people did. They whipped to keep them in control, right? So then the parents carried that on. So now it's a whooping and this is how we keep our children in control, right? So then the kids are learning what? They're learning that it takes violence to be to keep another person in control. So guess what? When they want to control another person, they're going to use violence, right? And so and then this is passed down through the generations and so now what is, what does that morph into now? The use of, it wasn't the use of knives when I was younger, bats and knives when I was younger. Now it's the use of guns. So we, we just up mm -hmm. the ante, right? So I'm whooping you in a different yeah. kind of way now, right? Yeah. And so, you know, so it, yeah. that's the measure of, that's the measure of thought as far as, you know, controlling a situation is concerned, right? So, you know, the time we find sexual abuse, for example, family, that cycle tends to carry on throughout the generations. Because oftentimes people will, a lot of people will get away from this type of abuse, but some will carry it on, okay? Because there will be some, some almost some very unhealthy idea of what love looks like now. Because what I learned is mm -hmm. that the people who love me touch me inappropriately, okay? So then that becomes their weird version of a type of love, or they have some, you know, or there's something, some damage done in there that you literally have to work through in order to be okay, right? And you're still yeah. battling. So when I speak to intergenerational trauma, it is just basically carrying on the cycle of trauma from generation to generation. That's fascinating because I don't think that Sorry, is actually... Ah, that was fantastic. Very spot on. And I think what I, what I find fascinating about it is that it's actually, I don't think it's talked about a lot because when you think about when you just talked about that how sort of values and experience how that's passed on when it comes to money mindset for example that's very well known and very like a lot like you know when you come from a wealthy family like they just have different attitudes and they pass that on to their children and all of a sudden the rich kid knows how to make money right and everybody nice. knows it in that context Right. And if you come from a poor family, you can have a good job and you're still going to kind of like screw it. And but it's because of what you've been taught. But in that context, what you just described, I, I don't think it's really talked about enough. No, I'm so glad you brought it up in that way. That excites. That's exciting because you know what? And that was and it was interesting because that was like my next thought was, OK, and that also has to do with the poor mentality. That's why. See, people want to understand better why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's exactly why. Because it's a passing on of a mindset. And then people want to get upset with those who stay in that poor mindset if, because they have no true understanding of the fact that this is ingrained. This is yeah. generational. This is, this is all they know. This is what they've been taught. So for those out there who, 
who, oh, they're they're just, you know, they're these horrible people because they're what they're doing is they they're hustling. What they do is they call their hustle. So then they're they are not being honest oftentimes. They are trying to figure out how to get over and find, you know, find how to get their money the whatever way they can. Because, you know, they've learned that that money's just not available. There's a lack. There's so much of a lack that you have. There's this desperation to try to figure out how to get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then for some, they just, they either give into it and they just say, okay. And they just kind of lay there. I'm poor. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. Yeah. And there are those others that they're fighting to try to figure out. So they're trying to figure it out by any means necessary, whether it be gambling, stealing, Whatever they need to do to make it happen, you know, that's what they do. And so it's interesting, and it's really, really difficult to break that cycle. Like, for me in particular, you know, I was coming up along that that whole welfare, you know, generation type of cycle. So we grew up very poor. And so in my mentality, was not, I, I, had, I had no other way to know to think, okay? And so what I learned is you have to get over to get what you want. You know, you have to steal and take what you want. You have to, you know, these are the things that I learned. And when I was a small child, I, I had, I was the oldest of three. So I had to take care of my brother and my sister because my parents had their own struggles. And, you know, and I don't, I don't really want to speak to or down their struggles, but they had a lot of struggles when I was younger. So I ended up spending the majority of time taking care of my siblings. And, and what I learned was I didn't, we didn't have any money. Okay. So when we needed food, I had to go steal it. And when we needed, my, when my uh, brother and sister needed medication, I had to go steal it. And so, and if I was sick, it didn't matter because my brother and sister were sick. So they needed medication. So me needing medication didn't matter. So I also learned that I didn't matter at that point. And so I grew up just really understanding that everything's a hustle, everything's a take. And I still now, now that I'm older, when I was a little kid, because this stuff was when I was five, six, seven, I was out doing this stuff when I was seven, I was frying chicken. And I would boils on my arms at seven. So, you know, and I didn't even, I didn't realize that you weren't supposed to get burned cooking chicken until I was old enough not to burn myself anymore when it was appropriate for me to be cooking. And then I'm like, oh, no more oil, no more books, right? And, and I, then it took me a while to figure out, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> so, and so, but to this day, I am extremely thankful to a person at a store. It was Rainbow Market when I was a little girl. And there was this guy named Tony that worked in there. And I know that he knew I was stealing, okay? He knew I was stealing and he let me because he saw the stuff I was stealing. I was stealing like meat to cook food and medicine and stuff like that. So he never, I never got into trouble for the stealing that I was doing. You know, it was very interesting. But you see, those are the kind of people that, that kind of disrupt that intergenerational trauma. So they give you an opportunity and a chance. They don't send you to prison or jail. You know, they said, you know, they let you know that they know, but they, you know, and they, they let you know that they're almost like it's okay, right? And I had, there was another person, this is the person now, now getting into why it is I do this work. Um, we called her Big Mama. She lived across the street from us. She was the only person that I knew that treated us like we were something. So we were like the, we were poor, so we were like the dirty little kids. So even when we tried to go to church, we didn't have church clothes. We didn't have church shoes. We didn't have those things. We were smelly. We didn't have the things. And so people would treat us like we were the dirty little kids. And so I hated going to church. I hated seeing those people with their noses up and judging us, right, when we didn't have anything. But our big mama, she treated us like we were actually something. She accepted us for who we were. She would give us, she knew we were hungry. She would give us cookies. Because cookies were, they were really, really special to us when we were little. Cookies and juice. She would give us cookies and juice, and we'd be like the happiest kids in the world just because but she taught us and she would tell us over and over again how important we were and how special we were and that always stuck with me and i all and i and i carry that on to this day is i want for every every child out there that's suffering in whatever way they don't have to be poor in whatever way because they could be poor just you know what i mean just yeah. in in their happiness and you know Absolutely. In life. so but i want to be that person that tells them you are freaking great Okay, yeah. and I'm going to need you to respond according to your greatness, not what other dumb people are telling you because they don't know better. Like if your parents are telling you that you're no good, that you're all these things, trust me, their truest intention is that you be happy, healthy, and that you feel loved. Their truest deep down intention. So if they're saying anything other than that, they're working against themselves and that's for them to work out. But for you, you need to know who you are. Right. Mm. And so but I, everybody and needs a big mama. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 
Exactly. I guess I'm the big, big mama. Oh, you know what? And the funny part is I always call myself, I said, you know, I don't know. I'm just a big mom. I said, oh. That sounds almost a like a book big... title, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but, but yeah, so, so that's why this, the work that I do is it hit, it's so close to home for me. And then also, I can't fail to mention this part because I know that I have some, some elite traits. Okay, some Aspie-ish type traits. There's, there's a lot of little things that people get offended or upset by what I say. Because, you know, uh, it, it has something, because I'm just telling the truth. If you're offended or upset by the truth, then there's something going on that you're trying to cover up. Like something that you're feeling that you shouldn't be feeling that you maybe need to deal with. <laughs> okay, but, but I have to say that on my end, I had lots of different things going on with me. So there was the issue with the eye contact. There's also the sensory issues. I didn't identify them as sensory issues, I would just want to beat a person up if they made too much noise. If they're too loud or or I have this strong anxiety in crowds. Trauma background, you don't want people on all sides of you because you don't know what people are up to around you. So you're hypervigilant. Yeah. So you're looking around and you're like uncomfortable when there's too many people around. And so, and so there's, like I said, there's a lot of crossover, a lot that I can identify and understand when it comes to that whole, you know, spectrum, spec, autism spectrum, spectrum traits, ASP, whatever people want to call it, okay? But when people have these sensitivities, they need to be identified. And the reason I, I like to use the word hypersensitive is because nobody is, like, turned off by hypersensitive, right? That's true. It's like, that negative connotation. And, and then it, it kind of, it, yes, it destigmatizes the whole thing. I actually just recently I had a I had a parent get upset with me because I was trying to teach them. I said, "Look, um, I understand that you know you want to teach your child to have pride in who they are, but you can't give them pride in a label. You have to give them pride in who they are. Because if you make them the autism, if you make them the whatever the disorder is called, right, you're gonna run into issues from that. There's going to be something going on with them identity wise." where they're not going to be comfortable or like when people say, look at them, they're going to feel judged automatically, right? Because there's already stigma attached to who they are, even though that's not them. They're who they are, okay? And so I've always, that's been one of my struggle areas when in, in working in mental health is I really, I don't, I'm not in love with labels. Unless a person needs a label assigned because there's a specific medication that they need to take for that label. And I understand it, that it helps give people context and certain things like that. But a lot of times people don't use it the proper way. Like they'll take the label and they'll work with somebody inappropriately because it, the symptomology is not quite cookie cutter enough to fit into that, you know, the way you're supposed to treat that label. So then what do you get? No results. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think it's also for the people themselves. It's like, it seems to be, I remember a conversation I had with someone like quite a long time ago and there was like, Oh, I just got diagnosed. And she mentioned that diagnosis, like whatever this, I can't remember. It's a really long word. Lots of disorder, this, disorder, that. And, and all I could think was, Oh boy, I wouldn't want that stuck onto me. Right. The thing was, she was really, like she seemed really relieved. It was something, well, it, it, it one, in one, it validated her experience. You know, I understand that bit. So, oh, so I'm not crazy. There is actually something going on. I'm just, I'm not just like a nervous wreck kind of thing. But at the same time, it felt almost as if, okay, so I'm just going to have to cope with this now. It seemed to be taking away the option of, relief or the option of, of for change it's like okay i'm now this is i'm this right and and that's what i am and then she identifies with it and it really seems it, to, to me it felt like yeah that that prospect of change seemed to be that door is closed now and i don't that's not my experience of of life or people or you know like there's a there's a beautiful book written mara gleason a change is just a thought. It's one thought away, right? So there is, is, you know, there is hope a lot more than a diagnosis like that, you know, makes you believe. So now here's the thing. I, now, I, I love that you brought, I bring that up because I love the idea of the diagnosis for the purpose of understanding, but not to place a person in a disabled state now. So my, my primary goal is to take that dis off okay yes. so now you're differently able so there are areas of challenge 
Yes. Okay. So there are areas of challenge and yes, you need to learn what those are and you need to learn how to overcome them. But that's where you run into some of those issues. Like you said, some of those issues, it's just now I'm just resolved to this is what's going on. So I have the can't help it's now, right? Yeah. I was a big, I can't help it person when I was younger. That's why I have none of it now. So when I would be blowing up, because I had that zero to 60 anger, we talked about traits, you know, zero to 60 anger, I was on top of that one, right? And then people say, you need to just calm down. And I'm like, oh, do you, well, if I could calm down, I would calm down. Like, <laughs> so that's a very dumb thing to say to a person. It's not like I want to be upset. I'm not waking up in the morning thinking, yes, <laughs> I'm not doing that. And so, you know, so it was very, these very upsetting things to hear. So, and then there's judgment behind that. Like, no, you're there telling me you should feel how I would feel about it. That's basically what people are telling me when they tell you you shouldn't do a certain thing. No, and that's the wrong thing to say because I don't have your history. You don't have mine. I don't have your temperament. You don't have mine. I don't have your personality. You don't have mine. So don't tell me that I shouldn't do a certain thing, okay? Or I should do a certain thing like you would do it, as if you're perfect, which you're not because nobody is, right? <laughs> then let's start to say things like, hey, look, you're, you're struggling in this area and you're clearly not happy with it. So let's, let's try to, let's work on making a shift in there so that you can be more, so that you can be more happy in this situation, right? Huge difference, right? Slight, but it's, it's a slight adjustment. And it's really interesting because people will be like, well, I said that to them. I told them they shouldn't do this. They shouldn't do that. And I'm like, okay, well, I need you to listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I need you to hear the words. Okay, because there's a difference between what you're saying, even though you're conveying the same message, change needs to happen. Okay, but one's coming at, in a way that you're being judged, you suck, you should, right? And the other one is coming in, okay, I understand why you are where you are, I accept where you are, however, let's move you to a happier place because we don't want you being unhappy. Because when you're unhappy, Oh, we're all unhappy, right? Yeah. So, so you know, it's a, it's just a different way of looking at things. And when you're coming from that perspective, then it really helps. So now that actually segues, sorry, into the LaFayette way, okay? Mm -hmm. Because the LaFayette way is broken up into four steps. And the way that I just broke that down really does fit in the steps. The first step is to, when you're dealing with a hypersensitive individual, but, you know, my thing is children, but individual, right? You find you're calm first. Why? Because that hypersensitive individual is drawing from every piece of energy you have coming from you. So if you have a peace space coming from you, they're going to draw from that peace space. And this will help them to calm down, de-escalate a lot more quickly, right? And, but if you're coming from a, rah, rah, I'm really upset with you, or a, oh, honey, I need you to do this, but your insides are screaming, <laughs> coming from, from those perspectives, then you're going to get a negative response from that hypersensitive individual because trust, they're coming straight from responding, reacting to whatever's happening with the other person internally. So find your calm first, okay? And the way to go about doing that, and I know that that's upsetting people to, to hear. They're like, well, I mean, if they're throwing things around the house, breaking things, how am I supposed to be calm about that, right? <laughs> right? And so, but... Because finding your calm has to do with finding your place of understanding. If your first place of understanding is if I am highly reactive to this individual who's acting out, I will only make things worse, which is not what I want. Right? Yep. That's how you find your calm in the first place. But there are other ways, and, and I, I clearly break that down in the book. So each step is broken down clearly in the book, in the LaFayette way. I have three books in the series. You can find them on barnesandnoble.com or Amazon. Get the, get the books. Even if you're not dealing with children, this will be fitting for you. I've heard from multiple people that this has helped um, on the job for them with, when they're dealing with hypersensitive bosses or other employees or co-workers. I know this works in the churches because I've already done some work with them to work with some of the congregation, some of the leadership so that they're dealing better with people. You know, I know that this works in other spaces. So if you do get the book, you know, it is, it is specifically tailored towards dealing with ASPE kids, kids on the, so first step, find your calm. The second step is to understand the real truth. Now what you're going to notice in the steps is they all weave in together. Understanding the real truth will also help you to find your calm. Why? Because the real truth, one of the real truths in there is 
I don't want to make things worse. Okay. Yes. Understand the real truth, right? And understand the real truth also includes understand that your reaction to what the other person is doing is tied into your own personality. It's tied into your own temperament. It's tied into your past as well. So if you felt built, bullied in your past, you're going to be highly reactive to a kid that seems to be trying to run your environment, okay? If you feel like you've been yelled, your parents yelled at you too much, you're going to be highly reactive to a person yelling, right? And that has more to do with your sensitivity, whereas that's not necessarily going to be everybody's response in that situation. So, so the way to get to understanding the real truth is to ask yourself, okay, wait, okay, I'm upset. I'm, I'm feeling really upset. Is this something that would be upsetting to any and everybody who dealt with it, including the Dalai Lama, right? Was this upsetting to anybody and everybody who's dealing with it? And so, right? And so, and then if your answer is no, which it would be, by the way, because everybody else is not you. How should be? Everybody else is not you. Then you can stop making it as if what the other person is doing is the cause of of your problem. Okay, so now you're under, and you're not. Now you're not being reactive to all the stuff that comes up for you when they do these things. Now you're reacting according to logic, which is what do we logically want? We want less of whatever behavior it is we don't like. <laughs> right? Logically. That's and by the way, I told you this all the time. I just have to throw this in really quickly because I love to educate. All emotions are are identifiers. They help us to identify very basic things like I either liked that or I didn't like that. Or I like this or I don't like this, right? If we're being really super duper basic <laughs> with it, that's what our emotions help us to identify. Right? I, I love I love how you put that. It's and, and really, I think the, the crucial bit you said before was that, no, no, it isn't what the other person does can never, ever be the source of how you feel, right? It's always, it's what you make of it. It's how you interpret it. It's always here. And, and I think that is like the biggest shift. And it's, it's, I think that's the key to, to, to all of that, to recognize that it isn't the kid or the other person doing this to you right it's it's like it's all created within you which kind of somehow takes the edge off right? it, it, it takes the edge off a bit but then it also for those who are well defended who are e very ego protective they will become offended by that so they will say oh, so are you saying that that I shouldn't be upset about what it is they're doing or blah, blah. And, I, and I'll tell them, no, that's not at all what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is understand that your reaction comes from you, not from what it is they're doing, right? Yeah. And, so, and, so, and that's all. And when, I, and when you understand that, then when you're conveying a message to this person, you can say to them what you really need to say. And actually, let me get into the next two steps because I want to get into that, digging that a little bit more. But, but find your calm, understand the real truth, and then react according to your truest intentions. Mm -hmm. When I say truest intentions, yeah. I mean your foundational intentions. Is if you're a parent, then what you want specific mainly is for your child to feel loved, cared for, and safe. Those are the three things that parents tend to want the most for their kids, right? And so it, you have to pay attention to whether or not the message that you're giving to them, no matter what the situation is, is fitting with your truest intentions. Because what happens is we'll get upset about being upset and blame the other person for it because now we can't help them to feel loved, cared for. And, you know, so now we're away from our, our authentic selves now. We're now becoming inauthentic and now we're angry with them and ourselves and everybody, every blame place that we can go to because we're not being true to ourselves. Okay. Where now, if you if you exercise the habit of reacting according to your truest intentions, what are your intentions? To get along, to have peace in your household. Okay, so if those are your intentions, then your reactions have to match. Okay, most of the time we're going the opposite of our intentions. So we're yelling, we're punishing, we're angry, we're all these things. And what are we conveying? What what does anger convey? Your disappointment. I resent you. I'm angry. I, I don't like you right? That's what anger conveys, right? You're not safe with me, right? That's what punishing does. You're not That's safe huge. with me, 
right? And so, so react according to your truest intention. So when you feel like you're in a mode where you want to punish and people like, so, you know, people will ask, so, so I'm just not supposed to do anything when they're acting out. Oh, no. I'm like, I'm like, no, that's not at all. I'm, I'm one of the firmest parents you can meet. Not at all. I'm saying that it's about discipline. Your goal is to teach and you want to teach. See, disciple is in there in, in discipline. There's this disciple in there, right? And that's to teach, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking to teach, you're teaching them now how to react in a way that will get them what they truly want. Because guess what? In acting out kid, they're not waking up in the morning thinking, yes, I'm going to get in as much trouble as I can. I'm going to have all of my video game systems taken away and be yelled at by my parents because that's my pleasure. Like, they're not waking up in the morning thinking that. And so when you're reacting according to your truest intentions, then you're also bringing out, and according to what the real truth is, right, then you're bringing that out of the other person as well. Because then when you respond, you're saying to them, oh, baby, you know what? I love you so much. And I know you're freaking awesome, like a majority of the time. But when you do this right here, I can't see your awesomeness, okay? When you do this right here, it creates a situation in my mind where I start to think, okay, well, how do we get less of that? And then I start thinking that, okay, well, maybe that's too much exposure to the video game. They're too high done. Maybe there's too much time on the phone. They're too disconnected. And then you'll start to feel like the things that you have are being taken away when both of us want you to have those things, mm. right? So then you're speaking to your child from a space where you're speaking according to your truest intention for them to be happy and okay and feel loved and to theirs like maybe you don't really want the bad things that'll come from what it is you're doing right now what's really going on like stop it's almost like that stop hitting yourself thing right like don't yeah. do, like don't do that to us i don't want your game taken away i don't want you in my face all day like i love you but i want you to have entertainment right yeah. <laughs> kind of thing right so and then when you're coming from that it, it creates this connection that feels like you're on their side instead on of on the same team yeah, it's yes. not me so against now, you. Yeah, so yes. So now you're no longer at war. So so guess what? If your goal is not to be at war in your household, you have to react, respond accordingly, right? And then if you're not reacting and responding accordingly, at least acknowledge that you have a part to do with the warring. Right? And so so find your calm, understand the real truth react according to your truest intentions. And then the last step is just now you recognize when change is happening in yourself and the other, right? Because recognition is important. Those small step, recognizing, acknowledging those small step changes are so, so key, right? Because then you get more of it. Whatever you focus on, you get more of it. So recognize, reinforce, right? Get to get more of it and repeat the steps. So then you just keep cycling through, right? And that's, and that's how, and that's, how the LaFayette way force that is broken down. And when you do that, you're going to create a better way of relating to everybody, but especially the hypersensitive individual. That makes so much sense. And I think you've given so much gold here. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I wish I would have, I wish I'd known this of it with certain bosses I've had in my life, you know, so there's like a bunch of people where I'm like, oh boy. And uh, yeah, it also reminded me the first time somebody said to me, I got upset about something and I can't, I can't remember what he said. And, and then he says, well, if you're upset about it, like that's kind of your problem. And I was, it was the first time somebody kind of suggested, you know, that my upset had actually something to do with me. And I was furious. Like my first reaction, like what he said, like what you behave like an idiot. And now it's my fault. <laughs> and I also remember the day after all of a sudden, like it really dropped like, Hey, there's actually a lot of liberation and a lot of power in that yes. because that also yes. means that you don't have any power over how I feel at all. Right. You there know, with the moment when you see that it's a game changer. Right yeah. now I, I learned a lot of this from my own, just my personal experiences. Okay. So, so some of it was like with my, with my daughter, she had very strong sensory issues very strong and she still does to this day have those uh, spectrum traits uh, the autism spectrum aspie traits is what i like to call it because it's tough because of what people have done to the to autism now is very upsetting but you have to deal in the truth as a parent too 
So if you're dealing with a, a child who has autism spectrum traits or they're Aspie or, you know, any along that along those lines, then you do have to be careful because now you're dealing with concrete thinking kids. So then when you say, oh, okay, you're, you're autistic, then this kid is taking everything they seem to be autistic and all the negative things and the stigma that comes along with it and saying, that's me, right? Because they're concrete thinkers. They have a very difficult time flexing. So if you're going to, you know, to share with them this and then try to have them take a pride in it, then you have to understand that they have like kind of a rock concrete kind of brain. So you have to work on the flexing. So then as you're expressing that and you're promoting that pride, then you're also teaching them, I understand that, you know, it can look a certain way here and a certain way there. There, you know, there are no bad pieces to it. There are just misunderstood pieces. And this mm -hmm. is your piece. And I need you to function in your, the way, your level of functionality. But with my little girl, when she was born, she was born with all those things that would cause, that would disrupt the ability to, to, to bond. So she did not want people to look at her, look in her face. She did not want people to talk to her. She would scream bloody murder. People would try to turn and face her and do the eye contact, the, the attachment thing. She would scream. If people would, and, and the only voice she would tolerate, voices she would tolerate was mine and my oldest son for some reason. No other voice, not her dad, grandpa, nobody else. She would scream. Okay. And so the first things I learned with her was, first of all, I understood. So I don't like being looked at either. So I understood. I was like, oh, baby, if that's how you feel, then let's work with that. Right. And so as it, but, but what I got from other people, and this is my point of understanding for parents, too, because I want to teach parents how to deal with other people who are judging their children. So other people would say, oh, she's just spoiled or she's, a, you know, what's wrong with her? She cries too much or blah, blah, blah. Right. And she would also with noises like door, any noise, doorbell, any random noise would startle her. So she screamed, she clinch up and scream. This is as a very small infant. Okay. Wow. Clinch up. So motorcycles, if we could forget a siren, no, that's really a big thing. Right. You know, cars passing by too fast. All these things would make her cry, cry, cry. Now, as a small baby, I started out with her with the attachment because I knew we had to do something to get that bonding space, you know, going. Otherwise she'd be detached. Now this part I knew. So what I would do is I would take her and I would hold her and I'd look at her and then she'd start to squirm. And so, and then I'd turn her out so she could regulate because that's where her regulation was found is not having that pressure of whatever it was that, how that would attack her. Then I bring her in when she seemed, her body seemed to calm down. I bring her back in and I look at her and she squirmed. And it took hours and hours and hours of this with her. But what it did was she started to allow me because it became a safe place to look at her longer and longer until now all of a sudden you can just sit and you can talk, you can play with her and talk with her and everything. And then we introduced the talking next, and, but it was all done in steps, but it was all done in consideration of her sensitivity. And now we're going to desensitize. We're going to work this in instead of just flooding and overwhelming and overstimulating an already overstimulated yeah. brain. Right. And so I learned a lot of what I know just in working with myself and her. And then the next steps for her were to work on sounds. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then this took, uh, we were at a loss until she was about two years old and she had actually developed language. Now I can tell you that she probably would have been seriously, severely delayed in picking up language had I not done some of the desensitization with the bonding piece because then she would not have learned how to mirror what other people are doing so it would take longer for her to, to develop language and so That's interesting yeah yeah and so so, so we had her developing language on time and so but we have these screaming fits with every loud sound so you take her on car rides you're expecting some screaming because some car some motorcycle something's going to pass by right mm -hmm. and don't forget trying to play music and so <laughs> and so one day a motorcycle drove by. I watched her start. Like she jumped really hard. She used to grab, like you, you knew it was like a real, true, like a, a feeling that was strong in her. Okay, it was this strong. Like, and so, but the motorcycle passed by. I watched her jump in her little car seat. I turned around, and it just instinctually, I looked at her, and and I looked at her, and I said, "Whoa!" And I said. I don't like that sound. And my big eyes, ears covered. I don't like that sound. And she she jumped, but she looked at me. She was like, you don't like that sound? And I was like, I don't like that sound. She said, 
I don't like that sound. Aww. From that point forward, we were able to put some language to what was happening with her internally. So mm -hmm. then it became something that she could bring out into her little baby. There's no real logic in babies, but you know, her little physical world that she could actually control, which is to use words instead of jumping and screaming and being fully responsive to her internal experience. Mm -hmm. And so then all of a sudden when she would hear loud sounds, she would jump and she would cover her ears. She like, I don't like that sound, mommy. Oh. I was like, Oh, I don't like that sound either, huh? And so, and we do, and so then we, then we didn't have, we did away with the screaming, right? And then we move on. I just learned she's 16 now. Wow. So now, now <laughs> that I'm doing, and she's, she's a complete total, what I call a passer. She's like one of those kids you would not know that she was spectrum me unless you spent a good amount of time with her because she is awkward. Now she's awkward, but there's a lot of awkward kids out there. So she's, you know, she's, she's quirky. She's awkward. And she, when she's around people that she knows when it's her, her people, her, her, her clan, she's fine. But when she gets around people that she doesn't know, that's when it really kind of shows me when we take her to doctor's appointments, she, she's real odd. She won't want to answer questions and things like that. In school, she wouldn't respond to the teacher. Um, when the teacher were calling her, she would shut down. And so, and so when I learned that from the teacher, she would get into trouble in the first grade because they thought she was misbehaving. And so then I taught the teacher, I said, look, she has extreme social anxiety. They can understand that. And she will shut down if you call on her without letting her know ahead of time. And so I started to go, then I was like, oh, well, let's be proactive. I will go to each teacher at the beginning of the year and say, look, <laughs> she's sensitive in this area. Don't think she's being defiant or not compliant. That makes such she a difference. She will literally shut down if you call on her without giving her some warning. So at least, you know, go to two, let her know two or three people before you're going to ask her a question that you're going to ask her a question soon and have her already prepared. And then she'll do better because she can kind of manage and work through that. I taught her how to breathe through, you know, some of the anxiety, but you can't just hit her <laughs> and expect yeah. that you'll get a response because you won't. In the fifth grade, she made me stop doing that. I told her fifth grade teacher the same thing. And she said, mommy, why do you keep telling my teachers that, you know, I shut down? But I said, because you do. And she said, well, I don't want you to tell them that. And I said, well, then I need for you not to shut down when they call you. Can you do that? She said, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, motivation is a heck of a thing. And then we didn't have an issue with that from now on. She still is uncomfortable with it, but she overcomes that. Right. I just recently found out that she doesn't like the sound of flushing toilets. I didn't know that because she's been coping with her stuff. Like she's been, she's so skilled now at coping with her stuff that she doesn't even, it's not even a thing for her. She just, she just deals with it. Right. Yeah. And so, but I was actually writing an art, a blog and I was mentioning her in the blog and tell her, she said, was I like that mommy? And I was like, and I was like, yeah, I said, that's, that's you. She said, Oh, I wonder why, I, you know, I, I don't, I really don't like the sound of the toilet flushing. She said, oh. most of the time I'm like, like, she said, I'm like way at the other end of trying to flush. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, you know, she's still very much, and I knew, and I did know that she still does the sensory stuff, but I didn't know about some of the little details in there. Yeah, too. that that's, that's incredible. So I, I think, I think we, we could probably talk like for days. And I think we probably should kind of continue on and on another because I think there's still so much that, that, that we can go into. For now, I'd love you to tell people where, can they, where they can get a hold of you and where they can get the books. Okay, you can go get a hold of me in a variety of ways. I'm super old school, so I prefer the phone. So you can call me at 916-596-5613. You can also email me at lafayaya at lafayaway.com. You can check out my website, which I highly recommend because it directs you to lots of free education and stuff like that at lafayaway.com. You can visit my Facebook page. I'll have a live parent, a live group going that's teaching on relational skills on Fridays. So check that out and get in contact with me there. Or you can visit my YouTube channel, at LaFailway. And my YouTube channel, I give so much free education. I just want for everybody out there, parents, teachers, everybody who's dealing with our kids and other hypersensitive people, okay? But dealing with people who are struggling with, you know, relationally, socially, behaviorally, whatever. I, I want people to have the information that they need in order to start the healing process 
instead of, you know, further digging into that wounding. So please check out my YouTube channel as well and send your suggestions. Send me tough questions. I'll answer them. It's a tough stuff. <laughs> she loves the tough stuff and yeah but, i mean please please do it's it's because it, I, it's it's not what, what i'm hearing from you it's not really that much even about information it's it's like an entire shift in how we approach those relationships yes. right and i think that the 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 insights that just when you broke up those, those four parts to it, when you said, oh, actually, yeah, you know, kind of that makes sense in any context, yes. right? So it isn't even just for people who have hypersensitive people in their lives. It's like, yes. oh, yeah, actually, that, that works with the relationships with your partner, with when you deal with clients, when you deal with bosses or, or literally everybody. So it's this whole, yeah, it's a different paradigm in that sense like it's a totally different way of looking at it so it's a it's a lot more than than information and I think if you can approach your relationships from that point of connecting and understanding it's like oh boy the world leads a whole lot more that and and I'm so you know delighted that we've had the chance to you know get a bit of a glimpse of of the work you do yes yes and you guys just know that my hope is is just in healing i want to heal the world really but i want to you know we have to start with our children let's start with this generation let's carry this new philosophy into future generations so then that way we'll have peace in our own world something that we have a dire need for especially nowadays hell yeah hell yeah well, thank you so much for coming i think that's just such a nice note to end this (laughs) big beautiful objective well, thank you. And I really hope to repeat this. I think there's a lot more to, to dig out. So let's speak again. Oh, soon. I have so much. <laughs> Thanks for today. And yes. I shall see you back again soon. Yes, see you soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you know people who might enjoy it too, please send them to passionbusinesspodcast.com.